Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews, insights, project management, leadership trainings and lessons learned from the field of healthcare to improve the delivery of your projects and business performance. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Tara Humphrey and on today's episode we are featuring Monique Carriel. Monique is the Director of Strategy and Transformation at Hounslow and Richmond NHS Community Trust. I loved, loved, loved this interview. We talked about the differences and the differentiation between project management and the program management function. We had a very honest conversation around the importance of tenacity and what to do, the advice Monique gives to her team when members of her team may feel like they're not wanted in their role. And when I say not wanted, I think when you're a project manager, you're a program manager and you're there to support people to change and they don't want to change, they will either directly or indirectly make it known that they do not want your skills and expertise. So she shared some advice on how she mentors her team um, when they encounter that. We had a really good conversation around how she listens to the voices in her in her organisation. She talked about having regular pulse meetings, surveys, you know, um, a variety of forums and Skype calls, especially now we're in the middle of COVID-19. So I know you guys will find that really helpful. And then we had kind of the meat of this conversation is where we talked about Monique's take on being authentically herself and her advice was to be yourself to back yourself don't be afraid to take leaps um, to progress your career invest in coaching and essentially you know it's very motivational to listen to her and it just makes you think when you have a bad day when I have a bad day now I'm going to think what would Monique do <laughs> definitely it's sometimes I think what would Michelle Obama do what would Karen Brady do what would Nikki Kanani do and now I'm going to think what would Monique Carriel do <laughs> and we end this interview where I asked her how does she feel about her role and her team and she just said on it and it was, yeah, it was amazing and lovely. And I know that you're really going to like this one. It's a longer episode than usual. So, you know, take your dog out for a walk whilst you're listening to this one. I'll put your feet up and have a nice cup of coffee and enjoy. Hi, Monique. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Tara, and thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So the main reason why I wanted to get you on is we had a fab conversation the other day about like quality improvement and leadership and building trust with colleagues from across the system and just what's strategy and transformation and what does all that stuff mean to you? And I just thought it would make an excellent, excellent podcast. So are you ready? I am. I am. Uh, so can you introduce yourself and give us a bit of a like a summary of your work experience to date and how long you've been working in the field of health? Yeah, okay. So this is my 20th year in the NHS. Um I've had a varied background. Um before saying all of that, I'm a mum of three children. Um so I think my daughter was two, my oldest daughter was two when I first start got my first job in the NHS. 
Um, and my first job was a PA. So I started off supporting a cancer services improvement team. Um, and I was really intrigued by the work they did and how you work with people to bring about change. But what happened to me was um, I fell pregnant with my daughter just as I started my business degree. So I completed that. And as soon as I'd finished that, I applied for a job in service improvement um, and then have had a f quite a few roles in the NHS in improvement, change, commissioning, and then coming into working for a provider. So Community Trust, who I work for now, Hounslow and Richmond Community Healthcare. I've been there for six years now and have had a couple of jobs there. But my current role, um, I'm the Director of Strategy and Transformation. So I have the executive and board level responsibility for strategy and planning, transformation, improvement, um, integrated care and partnership working, and also our business development and commercial work. Would you be able to tell our listeners what is a community trust and what services uh, do you guys deliver? Yeah, so um, and that's a really good question because it isn't obvious what we do. So we deliver most of the care that's provided outside of a hospital setting. So if you think about, um, we're all familiar with our GP and going to our um, GP practice. We'll all be familiar with going into a hospital. But the care that's in the middle of that, so district nursing, specialist community nursing, physiotherapy, rapid response services, occupational therapy, um, health and wellbeing services, though, uh, immunization services, those are the services that we provide. Okay, excellent. And when we first spoke, I know you've given us a kind of bit of a very high level um, description of your role, but what does it mean in practice? And one of the things you said, which I really, really liked is we spoke, you spoke about running the business and changing the business. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think, you know, my title, I think if you're not in the, it sounds quite jargony to me, and um, I remember someone asked me, what does it mean? What does transformation really mean? And I said, very simply, it's change. Now, yes, there are different levels of change. There are different complexities of change, but change is change. And I think when you work in any business, any function, anything that you're doing, um, if you think about it, you'll run whatever you're doing on a daily basis. So run the business, your business as usual. What is it you need to do? to make that business or service work? What is it that you normally do? And usually what comes under operations tends to be a term we hear a lot. But if you think about transformation, service improvement, change, all the different terminologies that we hear, that's changing the business or it's changing what you do. So I like to think of it simply, and it's not, I didn't make this up, someone explained this to me and I thought it's such a good way to yeah. be able to explain the differences run the business and change the business and most roles will do one or the other you do have some people if you're running a very small business you may be doing both but you'll still split that function down the line somewhere I'd agree and in my line of work when I'm working with my clients I am there to change to change something for them or with them so can you give us an example of what you are working on at the moment yeah, so, I mean, with COVID-19, um, you know, our, our delivery and what we're doing and how we're doing it has changed overnight. Um, and also, I think it's really important to pick up on we're all human beings living through a pandemic that we haven't experienced before. So we have 
large numbers of staff who are providing care and support to people, as well as as individuals living and bringing up their families and trying to manage through a pandemic. So what we're doing at the moment has changed quite a lot. Not that we're not providing care, but we're having to provide care in a different way. We've seen some of the programs of work I was working on, like us trying to deliver more integrated teams. And you'll hear the term quite a lot in healthcare about multidisciplinary teams. We've been doing a lot of work to come together across a borough footprint, or it's called a place now in the NHS long-term plan, to deliver coordinated care and support. So how do we look after our local communities who ha may have social care needs, healthcare needs, specialist hospital needs, may have housing and education and support needs as well. How do we bring some of that more together and deliver that across a, you'll hear the terms, a neighbourhood footprint or a primary care network footprint. So a lot of my team's work was around how we come together and work with other partners to do that. With COVID, we've had to accelerate some of that work because we've had to move quickly to be able to get people home from hospital a lot quicker to look after people with different needs and also to provide a lot of care virtually. So although we were all talking about use of digital, some of that has literally come in overnight at a lot, much larger scale than what we've been able to achieve in the previous 18 months. Yeah, and I think a lot of people will be nodding along saying, they're, yeah, we're all in a very, very similar situation. Who are you most in communication with in your organisation and where do you start when you say, okay, we, we need to improve our integrated care, who do you talk to first? So, so our clinical teams. So 70% of our organisation's resource, what we spend our money on is our staff. And as you can imagine, we're a clinical service. So the biggest part of that is working with our clinical team. So my team is a corporate-based team, but I have roles in my team, transformation leads, who are based in clinical services as well. And they're working with the clinical teams to support them through new ways of working and also to embed changes. Some of my team are clinicians. So actually they've had experience of delivering care and understanding how things work from their perspective. And then they've got the other side of the coin as well, which is the improvement and transformation techniques and tools to help that work over a larger scale. So I work really closely with the directors of clinical services. I also work really closely with my director of finance because we're jointly responsible for our efficiency program. I spend a lot of my week with my chief exec because I work very closely with her on our strategy, how we're going to do things, who are we prioritizing to work with, and then the other strand I spend a lot of time with is our partners. So hospital colleagues, social care colleagues, very much with primary care colleagues about how we're going to work together on some of the changes we need to make. Does the change get fed up to you or do you feed it down? It's a two way process. That's a really good question. My comment back on that is it's a two way process, but top down change for me can get established but it's very tricky to embed change if it's all top down we've got to have bottom up where we are supporting people to look at how they can make changes and what they want to change and we support them with the tools like I was saying but it's really important that they own the change and also most of our ideas and our best ideas and our biggest successes in change have come from ideas from our frontline staff 
And how does that get fed up to you? Or is it just through the close communications you've got with your clinical teams? We have a number of approaches. So something that we've been we've done a lot of work on as an organization over the past few years is about how we engage and involve our staff. And I don't really like using the word engage, Tara, because I think it's too all encompassing. What does it really mean? And I like to think about how we speak to and listen to our staff and our other stakeholders. That's how we do it. So we have a multifaceted approach. We have lots of forums, different forums where staff can come and get involved. My team spend a lot of time out there. I go out and speak to people. We also do um, monthly and quarterly what we call pulse surveys to staff. So we ask different questions about different things. And since we've been in COVID, where obviously we have um, a lockdown situation, we've been using Skype and Pulse surveys more. So we have twice weekly Skype calls where staff can join, ask questions, have a debate and find out more about what we're doing and how that's working, as well as daily emails. So I like to use a multifaceted approach to how we engage and understand, but also support staff with some of what we're trying to do. I've never heard of an organisation having regular pulse surveys. What is the what is the what does the mechanism look like and what is the response rate? In the NHS, there's something called a friends and family test, and it goes out regularly to people who use your services, but also to staff. Um, but it's not frequent enough. We felt it wasn't frequent enough for you to get a feel of what, how your staff are really feeling. So, of course, you talk to staff all the time, but actually something that's anonymized as well, I think, allows staff a platform where they can maybe share things and views that they maybe wouldn't in a more formal setting. We also have our annual staff survey, which, again, is a national thing for all NHS organisations, which is really helpful to understand how staff are feeling. But once a year is enough so the pulse survey is sent out via email we normally do i'd say between five and seven questions and they're multiple choice answers but they also have free text so people can answer the questions and give you free text and comments we did one last week on questions about covid working and living through covid and how you're feeling and we got a 27 percent um, response rate that's fantastic but what would you like your response rate to be so we so <laughs> I mean if you if you look at stats for and I'm not I'm not an expert on market research but if I remember rightly I think between 20 and 25% is normally what you would get out from a, an online mail out I think if I'm right with our annual staff survey we we've been um, one of the highest performing trusts in terms of response rates for the last 3 years and that's been just in and around 70%. And what we always say is that is brilliant, but that's only two thirds of the organization. What's the other third thinking? And I'd say the same about the response rate. Hearing from a quarter of our staff is brilliant, but what are the other three quarters thinking? And, and how, do you, how do you try to get those views? Why do they not want to respond? I think because one size doesn't fit all. So I took part, I was listening in on, we had a Skype, like I said, we have twice a week Skype calls that are open for all staff to join. The one I listened in on on Thursday had 120 odd participants. So arguably that's another 10, that might be the same 10%. It could be another 10% of staff you're hearing from on a different platform. My CEO and chair did a video briefing uh, last week. 
um, it will be a certain number of views you have on that. That may be the same stuff. It may be a different cohort of staff. And that's why I think it's important to have different routes where you can hear from staff because hopefully you're reaching a larger cross-section. We also go out a lot as execs. So pre-COVID, we would go out regularly to meet with teams and meet with people on a more individual basis as well. That's been more tricky with COVID, but what we are offering is for teams who are having virtual meetings that an exec would always be happy to come along and join or answer any questions if that's what people would want. So you used to be the head of a project management office. How would you distinguish the project management function from the role of the project manager? So um, we call ours a program management office. Um, what I would say is my PMO is there. They, they actually run some of the large trust wide programs. But more importantly, they're there to build capability and capacity in program and project management. So this is the way we do things around here and building some of that up. As the project manager, you are the person assigned to that particular piece of work to make it happen. The program management office may be the oversight and the framework for that large program or piece of work, but also gives tools to that project manager to do what they need to do in line with the way that we want to get that consistency across the trust or if you had one within your team or if you had one for one division in your organization to me that's the difference you're building capability and a consistent approach versus you're actually holding the ring and delivering that piece of work I think the other thing I'd say Tara is not often are you a project manager and you're just that role alone so lots of people will be delivering a project manager function within their day job. Yeah, I would agree. I definitely would agree. Does everybody get what the PMO does? In our in our organisation, I would say yes. I would also say um, when I first joined the trust as, to run the PMO, um, PMOs had started to become quite sexy in the NHS. They were the buzzword. And I think what was happening was, being honest, um, if you had a a tricky project or program to run get a pmo get a pmo in set up a pmo or sort it i don't think that's quite right because the pmo can't report on something if it's not happening so it's good to have the infrastructure but actually it doesn't make your project happen it doesn't make that problem get solved um i think in our trust i've done a lot of work and my pmos continue to do a lot of work to get out there and talk to people about what the PMO does, how we can support. We like to model it as a critical friend almost and, and supportive challenge. So they are strict in saying, this is how you should be doing it. This is what you need to adhere to. This is what we need to happen in the program. This is when you need to do it by. But actually they like to go out and support teams and say, well, and how can we help you to achieve that? So it's almost seen like it's a, it's a, it's a service and a support offer to the organisation rather than people feeling done to. In your, um, like your profile, you list um, as one of your strengths is tenacity to help um, drive projects through to completion. Why do you think tenacity is so important when thinking about your role, especially in that kind of PMO role? I think because there is always something new in the NHS, you know, and in healthcare, there's always something new that needs to be implemented. There's a new target, there's a new plan, 
there's a new system, there's a new need. Um, and what can happen is you switch from one thing to the other and nothing gets finished and nothing gets fully implemented or like the word I used earlier, embedded. Really tricky to embed change. And I think having the tenacity is twofold. One is about that so that you see things through to the end. And that's a really big thing for me about how I run my directorate. You know, we must be able to have the resilience and the motivation to stay on course. But also when you are in any industry, when you're delivering complex change or you're responsible for leading complex change, it's tough, really, really tough. And people get tired and people want to shoot you as the messenger and you can be the bad cop. You know, you're coming, they run from you. Oh, I'm not her again. Oh my God, she's going to go on about that again. Or they can be really against or have really deep concerns about the changes you're trying to make. And so that push against you, I suppose, if I always use that analogy of if you're trying to push a boulder up the hill, sometimes change was like pushing a really big boulder up a steep hill. It rolls back down on you sometimes. You know, you get a knockback. You get a really important stakeholder who doesn't want to engage or you can't get them on board. Or the project's been running for a while and everybody's just a bit, a bit tired and a bit drained of it. As the change agent and as that change driver, you've got to have the energy to push and to have that resilience to keep pushing the boulder and encouraging people to push the boulder and staying positive and having those lines about why are we still doing it and having that evidence of why it's still important. And I just think that's such a, it's such an important element to have in you as a change agent. And especially if you're a change leader, like what I do in my role, I think tenacity and being tenacious is so crucial. What do you say to a team member? And you kind of alluded to it, but when you feel like you're not wanted, you're there to help, you've got the skills and experience and you feel like you're not wanted and the role is not valued. What When your team face that, and everybody does um, at one point as another, but I, from speaking from first-hand experience as a project manager, you're brought in and sometimes it feels like, why did we bring her in? And it's a bit like, you brought me in. <laughs> um, and your team must have that. Even though people get what you do, people don't always want to change. What advice do you give to them? Yeah, and, and you know what, that's a, that's a day-to-day situation, especially when you're trying to do change at pace. I think, you know, that happens all the time. What Number one is um, my team is a small team, but we're very tight knit. So I really encourage them to stick together and to give a lot of peer support. So we talk about being change agents a lot. And I've done a lot of work on our away days about what that means and how it feels. So that number one, I hope that I'm coming across in terms of, you know, it's okay to feel scared and it's okay to feel like I can't push this boulder anymore. And that that's quite normal to feel like that. But what I also explain to them is I, I say to them, I'm always there. So I'll come with you. I'll double up with you. I'll come to that meeting with you. I'll provide the air cover for you. Just reassuring them that no matter what, you've got my support. I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you to the, you know, to the wolves on your own. I'll come in. I'll take that on. And that's not taking over. And that's not undermining them. It's about just giving that air cover. 
you know, making sure that they feel they've got air cover. And mo most of the time, they don't need the air cover, Tara. They're absolutely yeah. okay. But I think it's just that reassurance that it's there because, and also being really open that I find it hard as well. I face those conversations as well, you know, and I feel scared and sometimes I don't want to, I don't want to have those conversations with those tricky stakeholders and I need to give myself a pep talk too. Um, and that is okay to feel like that, but it is our role and we've got to push through it. Do you, who is your, do you have a mentor or a coach? Who do you go to when you're having a bad day? So I've, I've had, a, I have coaches and I use, I've used coaches um, in all the time that I've had senior roles. I think it's, um, I'm a big advocate of coaches um, I feel that for me, um, I've got some fantastic peers um, and I've, I work with a really strong um, and supportive executive team. However, for me as a, a leader, a female leader, a senior leader, um, my role is very much about taking the message out there and being a, and being a really um, confident and clear communicator. And to be able to do that and to make the complex simple and to deal with some of my own fears and some of my own thoughts, working with a coach is really crucial for me. So I've always worked with a coach that, and usually a coach who specializes in leadership because I need that space and time to unpick some of my own um, challenges to deepen my understanding of some of the techniques I use as well. And I really believe in continuous learning. There's always something new out there and I like to learn and to grow and to keep thinking about ways that I can be the best leader I can. So I'm a big advocate of that. For you, hopefully your colleagues, some of your colleagues that listen to this, what would they be surprised to hear about some of your fears because you, you, you're very confident, very approachable. We all have fears and we all have insecurities. Would you share one of yours that I'm, I'm sure your team would think, oh my God, I would never have thought that ever. <laughs> so I still get really nervous about chairing meetings. You know, it's one of my strengths and it's something that I've had feedback on that people say my approach to chairing and leading meetings. And I and I chair quite large meetings, um, subcommittee meetings, meetings with other, you know, um, partner agencies, etc. And they're big ones. And I still get scared. You know, I still feel, oh, have I sorted everything out? What am I going to say here? What am I going to do if that happens? Oh, what if nobody turns up? I still have those feelings. I still get butterflies when I need to present. Um, you know, when I go to events to present, network events to present, large events for work, I still get butterflies. I still get scared. People will say to me, but you're so good at public speaking. And I know my strength is in communication, but I still have that fear of, oh, you've got to get up, up there on the stage and do it. I still feel like that all the time. I still worry about have I explained myself clearly did everyone understand me or has that just gone over their heads you know um am I going to lose people on this journey because they just don't I'm just not making it clear enough you know so all those fears I have on a regular basis I, I face them but I absolutely feel those nerves and fears all the time I think so many people can relate to that 
so many people. Do you think in those moments, do you overcompensate? Do you really, even though you're scared, do you really, really prepare? Or once you, is it the fear at the beginning, but then once you're in it, you're just relaxed and you're just your normal self and you know it? Or are you scared until you stop talking? No, I think um, something I've learned the more and more I'm in those situations is do my preparation, but do not rehearse a speech and do not rehearse your presentation word for word because I'm not myself. I'm not myself. I need to know the subject matter and know what I want to cover loosely, but I work best and how I clear my nerves is once I'm in that space, just go with it because you've got the, it's there in your head, go with it. If I rehearse it and I've got a set speech, it goes wrong. I fumble my words. I lose my flow because I'm trying to remember a rehearsed flow. Whereas if I trust myself that I know that subject and I know what I want to get across, I'm just me. And I think it's important to be me. Um, something that was said to me, something what I didn't say, Tara, and sorry if you're going to come on to it, but something that I didn't say was about a bit about my journey and I've been internally promoted a few times and whenever that's happened, I've always had people say to me, don't change, don't change because you've got a more senior role, keep doing it how you do it. And that's why I think, okay, I'm not quite sure how I do do it, but whatever it is, I'm meant to just go out there and do it and not overthink it, even when I'm scared. And that seems to be how I deliver and how I get the best out of me what do they when they say don't change what do they what do they want you to not change into I think there's something what happens sometimes where um as people um as careers develop and people get more into more senior roles they can sometimes become quite authoritarian or sometimes which is really unpleasant sort of look down on people who maybe were your peers before um and also maybe you thinking you've got to use a different set of language or thinking you've got to behave differently. Um, and I think when I've asked that question, what do you mean by don't change? What people have said to me is, you know, be how you are, still connect with people how you do, still speak and behave in the way you do now um, and still be that challenge. I'm someone who I like to challenge the thinking and I'm, I don't mind asking why you know, why are we doing it that way? Or why do you think that needs to be that way? And I think that's what people have said to me. I mean, don't, don't, don't stop doing that. Don't stop being challenging. Don't stop being supportive. Don't stop being open and approachable is maybe what I think they're getting at. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have felt like you've needed to change your not completely you know, not completely but you may find find yourself in a meeting and you you think actually you look at the and it's not a looks thing it is just you know like you sense the vibe in the room and you do you, have you ever thought I, I need to conform to this or is that sense of self so confident in an amazing way that it doesn't occur to you? You're like, I'm Monique, this is me, this is my skills, and I'm going to say it how I think it is in a professional way. You know, that is such an important question. Um, and why I say that is, if I was asking, my, you know, if I was flipping it and saying to myself, don't change, 
something I really stand by Tara is you stand by your courage and conviction and um, I've absolutely been in those situations where I can see a vibe and a kind of direction of conversation in a room and I don't agree with it and um, I won't partake in it so I'll either say my point which may be different to the direction of travel or I won't partake in it I won't nod I won't give body language that will give the impression that I'm colluding or agreeing it will be quite clear that I'm not so I'll either openly object or if it's not um, appropriate to do so or relevant to do so I won't partake in it Um, I stand by who I am and what I stand for um, and I don't agree with doing that I think it's different if it's about a topic of conversation, but I think it's about tone and behaviours and and respecting everyone's voice and valuing different groups of people. And when I don't see and hear that happening, I don't collude with that. I don't agree with it. It's so, and I think we've all had those situations. And I would say when people do unintentionally collude, like they don't know that they're doing it. Mm. And then they'll come out of the meeting and go, you know, then they'll start to share what they really think. It's difficult, but I think it comes with maturity. It comes with a real, you know yourself. And I think that we're always developing and uh, learning about ourselves. And I would think to anybody with any, any stage in their career, but in the early part of their career, it's if you can the more confident you can become in yourself and you know your strengths, your weaknesses, your values, it will take you far wherever it takes you. Even if you feel like you're faltering or you've taken a couple of steps back, if you're true to yourself, and that sounds very cheesy and very cliche, but I really believe it will take you far. You won't have any regrets. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad you've asked me that question because um, it's so important, more than ever now, I'd say, actually, to number one, back yourself, and number two, be yourself, you know? Especially when the more, the more senior or the more challenging your role is, if you're not being yourself, if you're not being true to yourself, if you're not being your authentic self, I don't know how you'll cope, because you can't put on an act day in and day out. You can't, when, when pressure's on, you know, when you're under pressure in that way, how are you going to remember? Cause you're, you're not being yourself, you know, and, and I don't believe that's comfortable and I don't believe you get the best out of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe you'll give the best to others if you honestly don't feel like you're being yourself and you know, our best self is good enough. And if you're in an environment where it doesn't feel like it's good enough, then that's not the right environment for you. That's not a slight on you or me or the individual. I think it's just about, I really hope I could, the one thing I hope I really do, Tara, as a a leader in healthcare is to encourage and support people to be brave and to, to feel that they can be their authentic selves. And it would really hurt me if I felt that um, I missed the opportunity to not encourage people, especially younger people coming into their careers to be themselves and back themselves. We need people to be authentic and to be them. We need the diversity of what all different people bring. We don't need clones of, you know, people who people think they should be like. Um, That's not what this life's about, in my opinion, anyway. 
I think people that are not truly authentically themselves at work, I think they can cope, but I don't think they can thrive, if you know what I mean. I think people can coast along and say one thing and and display other behaviours quite nicely, but I don't think they are thriving. And I think other people can sense, I'm going to keep my guard up when I'm around you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that's the thing. And if we're talking about, uh, you know, the environment I work in or what my field is about, that transforming and change and driving change and usually driving change at pace, um, you need to be on your A game and yeah. you need to be thriving to be able to, to deliver that and deliver it well. Definitely. So in our conversation, you use the word complex. And in healthcare, we use complex, complexity, complexity theory. When I did my MBA, I loved the module on complexity theory. What does complexity look like in an NHS trust? My God, layers and layers and layers is what I want to say, first of all. Um, What's complex is because we're looking after, if I started from looking at it from our local community and people who use our services, the people we look after, our users and our patients. A number of them have complex needs, different needs. They've got different support needs. And I mentioned that before. Um, And how and when they need care can be complex. Care can be complex because we're looking after families, multi-layered families now. So levels of healthcare within a household can be different. It's complex because in the NHS, as I was explaining before, healthcare is split into different trusts. A lot of people don't understand that. So you've got multiple different organisations all delivering care and support a lot of the time to the same people. That's complex. And then we've got the complexity of we're working with different individuals as people in the organisations and systems we work in. So I work in a system at my organisation level. I work in a system at a borough level, I work in a system at what we call a sector level. I then work in a system that we call region, so the London region level, and then we go to national level. That's complex. So there are so many different facets to what makes it complex. And how do you not go crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Um... So I... You get used to it to a degree, don't you? You do, kind of get used to the madness. So so 20 years into the NHS, I'm very used to the complexity of the NHS architecture. I'm very used to that. And I think being a commissioner helped me to get used to that as well, because I worked across different boroughs doing different areas of work. And that's how I learned it and understood it. Um, what I think also helps though is I'm a very clear thinker. So um, I connect the dots. So I, I like to, one of my things I will say, if you ask me what are my strengths, I make the complex simple. So I know I'm good at taking all the information and connecting it and then building that roadmap that makes it simpler for other people. Um, and I've done that for a long time, but that has been one of the key factors that um, I think has made me successful as a director that helped me make that step up was being able to build and build and build on the complexity layers, but being able to build and communicate a clear roadmap out of it. And I would say also I'd add to that. And it sounds like 
you can navigate that because you're good at communicating with people and talking to people and asking people and where you say you know the communication is two-way and multifaceted so I think that in order to walk in you know understand somebody else's shoes you're you know it sounds like you're very willing to go to that other person and say tell me about it what what do you think what do you what do you see what do you experience and and been able to bring that all together so in doing that so when I am so as an example and I know you know this is your world as well Tara working with primary care networks the approach that I've taken is to go to the primary care networks go to the individual directors go to the speak to people in the PCNs to hear it from them not saying you need to come to me and and you know we need as a trust we need to hear from you one voice per PCN or one PCN voice now why would we do that when actually the whole point of a primary care network is to provide and understand that local need and how you bring that local collaboration together so I need to come to you and understand it and then bring it back together and go okay from what I've heard now and what I see, this is a way forward that most probably will meet the vast majority of need. But here's where we need to be more localised and here where we need, you know, PCN1 might need something different to PCN5 and that's okay. We can work with you from that point and you'll, we'll get the buy-in and we'll get the, the, um, we'll get the complexity to weave back together. And I think it's been brave enough to take it back down to the, the level that we need to, you know, go right to front line and then bring it back together. I love that. I love that. What advice would you give to a young person looking up at you thinking, well, I've got this fantastic career in this fantastic position. How do I get from, how do you get from PA to director? <laughs> um, so I said it before and I said it quite quickly about be yourself and back yourself. And that sounds really simple, doesn't it? And sounds like, oh, right, that sounds like a nice little um, strap line. But if I unpicked it a bit more, what I would say is um, it's really easy to see, job. you know, you, you have a job and you go, oh, here's the next step on the ladder because that's what's been prescribed to me. And you inch up that ladder step by step and you're not always willing to maybe jump two or three steps because you just don't think that's the line. What I did, and most probably because I've got quite a cheeky nature in the terms of if you can do it, I can do it. That's my nature. If they can, why can't I? And that's not because I, I, I'm trying to beat that person. It's just because my mind goes practically. If, well, if someone can do it, then that means I can do it because it's possible. And I think that step of, right, okay, well, if I do all of this and I understand it, I might not have the experience, but I understand it. And I think that's the thing about... How do you get the experience if you've never done it? You've never had the job opportunity before. Well, you might understand it and you might be able to prove you can understand it. And I always applied for roles on the basis of, I might not be able to prove to you that I can do this, but I can prove to you that I understand it. And if you give me a chance to explain and you give me a chance to show you I can do it, I will. And that's why I mentioned about having intern I've, um, achieved internal promotions because I think when you're working somewhere, of course, you're doing your job and you're getting on with it. But people know you and they know what you're about. When an opportunity comes up, you still have to make the application process and go through that. And you do your best. 
But what you also know is that they have seen you and they know what you're about. And that seems to have helped me in that thing when I've said, I haven't got all of this experience on paper, but I know I can do it. And this is why I know I can do it. And that's enabled me. I've jumped rungs in my career. So, you know, from a PA, I jumped to a service improvement manager. I moved into commissioning. I jumped to a senior commissioner. I jumped to a head of commissioning. I jumped to running a program management office. I jumped to a director. The reason being is because I took, I went for those jobs. I went for them. And even though on paper, it may have looked like, well, how the hell is she going to get that job? I knew my capability and I knew what I could do. And I backed myself to say, well, actually, the people I see doing this job, no disrespect to them, but I think I've got that quality. I think I could do it. And I'm not going to know unless I try. And I'm not going to know unless I put myself in the seat of filling out the application form. So I would really encourage people, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's a no. Nobody likes a no, but that no isn't going to kill you. So put yourself out there, go for the jobs, apply for the jobs. Most people give feedback. Most people are really willing to give feedback. You'll learn from that and put yourself out there. Put yourself out there for opportunities in your organization now. Offer to do extra projects. Offer to speak to senior people and get involved. Most people don't mind that. Most people really like someone who wants to learn. They want to share that knowledge with you. It will stand you in good stead for when an opportunity comes up. So be yourself and back yourself. What would you say? So the worst thing could happen is a no or another perspective is it's not the worst thing. But what if you take that leap and find yourself in over your head? That could happen. Um, I found it really tough. So two of my jobs, when I um, got a big promotion, my director role, and also when I got my first role as a head of commissioning, the first six months I found really tough. Um, I don't know if I was over it, in over my head, but I just know I found it really hard digging into what I knew I could do, feeling comfortable on that new stage and platform managing people I remember when I got my senior when I became a head of commission they gave me a bigger portfolio I had three senior managers who were all closer in age to my mom and dad than they were to me very experienced people brilliant at what they did and I've been parachuted into this role above them and it felt so daunting um, and what I did was I worked with my coach so I was in, I did feel like I was in over my head, but I thought I got this job on merit. They saw something in me to give me the job. What I've got to do now is really kind of um, enhance those things that they saw in me. Um, but something I'd also say, Tara, is that I've had good managers. So I'm not going to lie and say, this is all about me. That's not true. I've had very supportive managers. So in those two situations where it did feel really tough in the first six months. I had very supportive managers. But if it is really not for you and you go into that space, I would just say, you know, give yourself a pat on the back for trying, for being brave. If it's not for you, it's also about being brave enough to say, I've tried this and it wasn't for me. I think that should be commended and not seen as a fault or failure. I love that. To close out this interview, can you give me 
one word to describe how you feel about your role and your team? Honoured. I would say I feel honoured and I feel emotional actually, Tara, saying that. I feel really honoured to be blessed with my role, to be given the chance to, to, to hold a senior role. Um, I'm very proud. My family are very proud of, my, of what I've achieved in my career. And um, they're very proud of um, the fact that I hold the role I do. Um, I know I'm seen as a role model. Um, very much so again that can be something that's daunting but I'm very honoured that people from my community from a similar background um, see me other women you know younger women other women other black people see me as a role model and and are proud to see me in the role I feel very very honoured as an individual to be the person in that space and I feel extremely honoured to have the team I have. My team are first class. They are fantastic. Nothing is too much trouble. They work hard. They're professional. They're courteous. They're highly skilled. And without them, I wouldn't be where I am right now. They deliver, deliver and deliver time and time again and are just absolutely fantastic. They are so supportive. They are so supportive to me. Um, yeah, honoured really feels like the right word for me. Thank you so much, Monique, for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. I hope that you liked it. And if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the podcast, I would be absolutely over the moon if you could go over to iTunes and give this podcast a rating and review. So the Business of Healthcare podcast is being brought to you by THC Primary Care. We are a project management company specialising in the development of primary care networks, GP federations and training hubs. Find us on www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. And in the meantime, please tune in to the next episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast. <laughs>